It's Christmas on the doomed Titanic, and somewhere in Victorian times, Cybermen are trying to crush our Christmas cheer. We look back on our companionless Christmas specials on the October 18th edition of This Week in Time Travel. Well, Chip, it is wonderful to be back here. It's wonderful to be back. Thanks so much to Rachel and our guest, Kathleen Showalter, joining us last week uh, as we began the Christmas Master Plan, and we're going to continue that in a little bit. We are, and we are going to be looking uh, at some fantastic episodes, Voyage of the Damned uh, and The Next Doctor. But first, we have some uh, really fun news from this week. The Doctor Who Series 10 DVD and Blu-ray cover and Steelbook were released, and oh my goodness, they look gorgeous. I saw the Alice Zhang paintings circulating on Twitter this week, but I didn't know what they were attached to. My God. Her representations of Peter Capaldi and Pearl Mackey are incredible. They are gorgeous. I love that she's doing official licensed work for Doctor Who now because I really just need her artwork on anything that I could possibly purchase. And the DVD Blu-ray covers, those are usually less great than the Steelbook just generally. But this time around, that's some pretty fantastic artwork that's on there. I'm actually really impressed. I love it. Yeah. Um... And I've been lamenting the lack of value-added material that we've been getting with Doctor Who in recent years as budgets have shrunk and DVDs and Blu-rays have become less important as everything's moved to streaming. But this one looks like it is chock full of material. I'm looking at DoctorWhoNews.net right now. We've got a profile of Pearl Mackey sort of tracking her joining the cast all the way through the season, and another documentary called Out of This World. Both of these are narrated or hosted by Ingrid Oliver, so it's great to see her back. Absolutely. Uh, And writers. There are a couple of good pieces on this list as well, interviewing writers past and present. Yep. Frank Cotterell Boyce is going to be doing a feature about uh, his episode, Smile. There's going to be another feature with Mike Bartlett and uh, director Bill Anderson about their episode, Knock Knock. And there's also, related to that, they're going to actually be releasing the binaural sound version of Knock Knock, which is going to be sort of the surround sound that you need to listen to with headphones. So that should be extra creepy. And then I'm particularly excited because they have Rona Monroe coming to talk about her experience writing for both classic and new who. So that should be fantastic. Yep. Yep. And all of the after shows of Doctor Who, the fan show hosted by Crystal D with the weekly Peter Capaldi hair watch and everything else that we saw on YouTube after these episodes. Just looking deeper at the thing. Ingrid Oliver is all over this. This might as well be the Ingrid Oliver special edition season retrospective. The only thing that I don't like about this is I kind of wish it was being released in January so that we could have the Christmas special in it as well. 
But then they wouldn't be able to release a special Christmas special DVD that you have to shell out a whole other $30 for. I see the illogic of my preferences here. You've made me reconsider. I will offer them more money. It's always the trade-off. Speaking of uh, throwing your money at things, a copy of the Twice Upon a Time script signed by Peter Capaldi, David Bradley, Stephen Moffat, Mark Gatiss, Nick Briggs, Pearl Mackey, and Rachel Tolalay is being auctioned off to benefit William Shatner's charity. So excuse me while I go empty my bank accounts and still not have enough money to bid on this because that's going to go astronomical. And what's worse is even if you did do that and you won the script, you won't get it until after Christmas anyway. They're not going to let the actual script leak until after the episode is aired. Uh, You don't even get the benefit of knowing what happens before everybody else. That's silly. Are you the sort of person who opens your Christmas presents before Christmas? Yes. Yes, I am. And I am not ashamed of it. I would absolutely read that script from cover to cover before the Christmas special happened. And I have no shame about this. I acknowledge this is who I am as a person. I, <laughs> I, I should have realized as I opened my mouth that that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> yeah, but I'm never, ever in a million years going to be able to bid enough money to win this script. Yeah, well, while you're contemplating that, there's going to be somebody out there who is holding on to this script with all of those signatures on it for a worthy cause. Let's get ready to talk about Voyage of the Damned and the next Doctor right after we check in with what else is happening on the Incomparable Network. This week on the Incomparable Network... Sestra cast returns, covering episode 9 of Orphan Black, Unnatural Selection. The panelists draft their favorite Disney animated movies, their sentimentality and spite in equal measure as people's favorites are stolen on The Incomparable. And Steven and Erica talk about one of the most important parts of The Prisoner. It's typeface. That'll be on TV. All of this and more at TheIncomparable.com. I did not expect to have feels watching Voyage of the Damned, Alyssa. I didn't expect it. Oh, really? You didn't have feels the first time around? It's an interesting animal. Um, Voyage of the Damned is the third Christmas special, aired in 2007. It has one Kylie Minogue as the sort of as the essentially the companion of the episode although it's a it's a fairly large and reasonably renowned cast i mean this is this is bernard cribbins reintroduction to doctor who and we get to find out later that he's wilf he's actually wilf he's not just this random guy uh um it was actually him uh but my initial reaction to voyage of the damned back in the day was this is a really big epic kind of story but disaster movies are not my jam and Mm -hmm. disaster movies at christmas are really kind of difficult for me oh really because some people a lot of people that i know it you know that's sort of their thing that they will watch the disaster movies or the horror movies on christmas uh and i kind of could take them or leave them and i'm not particularly bothered by any of them but uh and you know we'll be 
getting to some later Doctor Who Christmas specials uh, about people who watch movies like Alien during Christmas time. But uh, it is kind of one of the, you know, standby stalwarts of Christmas media watching that occasionally you throw in something uh, with the opposite of sentimentality. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm a little too straightforward for that sort of thing because that's it's not quite how I'm wired. But let me tell you why I wound up having such a strong reaction at a couple of odd points to Voyage of the Damned. It had very little to do with the episode itself. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first time that we got... Murray Gold's rocked up version of the Doctor Who theme. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, I remember being one of the holdouts back then who was not only not offended by this sort of modern electric guitarish uh, driving decidedly mainstream version of the theme. I actually adored it. And the theme hasn't been like that in quite some time. Murray Gold has done much more unearthly stuff uh, uh, for the Stephen Moffat era, and I had forgotten that it was go- that I was going to hear it. And hearing that theme, I had a, I had that moment of you know Han Solo and Chewbacca walking onto the ship in Force Awakens. You know, Chewie, we're home. <laughs> it it really got me. And similarly, bookending the episode, you have the coming soon trailer for series four with Mm. this music by Murray Gold that, you know, I I feel like he's cribbing some of his Journey's End soundtrack. It feels a little Torchwoody kind of music. Again, it's really driving stuff like that's not the radiophonic workshop kind of stuff. It captures, I think, for me, the peak of what I enjoyed about the RTD era and it's sort of my era of Doctor Who. And what's really weird about that, Alyssa, is that the episode in between that theme song and the coming soon trailer for series four is not optimistic, is not bouncy, it is not it, it is it is grim. Mm-hmm. It's a very grim episode. I think one of the things that stood out for me, and this is on rewatching it, obviously, um, is that this is really kind of one of the first specials that doesn't have a continuing companion in it. And obviously, back with The Runaway Bride, they didn't know at that point that Catherine Tate would come back and that Donna Noble would be a recurring companion. Um, But it really does stand out on a rewatch that you have Kylie Minogue here as sort of a temp companion, um, and that she dies kind of terribly at the end of it, notwithstanding the partial resurrection and, you know... right. Snowflake you, effect at the end where she she drifts off, but it it's you know it's of, not going to go well for her when the doctor invites her onto the TARDIS. Oh yeah, I, well I knew it wasn't going to go well for her as soon as you know he was like you should see me in the morning and she went okay. It was like oh she's going to be dead by the end of this episode, isn't she? Um, but it it's it's kind of dark in that way that you start having you know the doctor's temporary companions get killed off. Um, and it, it start, sort of marks a real shift moment for the 10th Doctor here that, you know, it's not just there's some darkness and some things that he does that he 
is going to regret later on is that he's really losing people that were going to be his companions. Um, and that seems to really affect him. And we start getting a, a lot more of that uh, emo-ish uh, David Tennant and Doctor that you're going to see a bit throughout uh, series four and into the specials. So we're situating it in place. We've just had the Master Trilogy. We've had Martha Jones departing and doing it on her own terms and sort of putting him in his place. So he is not as sort of depressed and lost as we will see out of him uh, at, at points in the next Christmas special, the next Doctor. But, you know, he's he's not doing great. It, it Also, finally, after the conclusion of Last of the Time Lords, and then after the inserted Children in Need special with uh, Peter Davison, we finally... Have, we finally have the Titanic crashing into the TARDIS for the last time, and we actually move the hell on from that to actually tell the story. Um, <laughs> so I was, I, I remember being kind of impatient to actually get on with it after all of the, uh, after all of the buildup. But yeah, the Doctor changes to a tux, and David Tennant in a tux is always quite appealing, and finds himself. In a disaster movie. That is literally and exactly what Voyage of the Damned is. And we talked a little bit about that may be some people's jam, but it is simultaneously over-the-top Christmassy and not Christmassy at all. Yeah, they very they lean very heavily on some of the Christmas visuals. So, you know, you're in this ship for a Christmas cruise over the UK on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Um, so the decorations and the music are there, which, speaking of Murray Gold, he actually has a cameo um, mm-hmm. in that early scene. He's in the band in the back, um, which I did not know until I looked on the internet because I've actually never seen Murray Gold before. <laughs> I've just listened to his music. And then you also have these golden hosts, these angels that are walking around the ship and uh, alternately helping guests and then murdering them. So it's kind of visually really hitting you over the head with, it's Christmas, everybody! But the tone is very much not Christmassy. Um, It's disaster, it's doom, it's destruction. Mm -hmm. Um, It is... All right, let's let's make it through this holiday and let's not destroy Buckingham Palace and kill the Queen before her speech in the morning. Um, and uh, there's not really a lot to do with otherwise that sort of Christmas spirit of, you know, spending time with the people we want to on the holidays. It's uh, very much not like uh, some of the episodes that have preceded it or the ones that will come after it, and that the holiday is mostly place setting. Uh, there's not a lot actually playing with the themes of the holiday itself. Yeah. The Russell T. Davis era is not hugely meta uh, in the way that Stephen Moffat's stories tended to be, uh, with the exception of Love and Monsters. Uh, but um, we do get that bit of a joke about it with. Wilf in his uh, in his newsstand 
telling the doctor that everybody clears out of London now because Christmas is always awful because awful things happen. And he recaps the <laughs> plots of the 2005 special and the 2006 special. There's also that moment where uh, the doctor is, you know, acknowledging that he never has anything good happen when he wears that tux. And he's trying to correct, you know, the Earth tour guide about Christmas is about love and family. And oh, who, what am I talking about? Every one of my Christmases is a disaster. <laughs> and so, of course, course, we get a disaster movie where most of the passengers on the ship get killed by the uh, equivalent of an iceberg, and we have a small band surrounding the doctor that gets whittled down uh, person by person until the end, and the day is saved, and the few survivors include a really miserable capitalist, and uh, and we get, again, as you, as you alluded to, that hint of the darkness of the doctor when mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Copper says that, you know, he's not of all the people who survived, he's not the one you would have chosen, is he? But then if you could choose who survived, that would make you a monster, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a bit of a, that's a, that's a bit of a flash forward and a little bit of that sardonicness that uh, Russell T. Davis just sort of has a little that cynicism that is sort of lurking underneath his stories about how easy it is for a doctor to fall. There's, there's a there's a through line from here to uh, the waters of Mars, I think. Yeah, and there's also very much that sort of commentary you're going to see about you know the doctor uh, is very good at getting people to put themselves at risk in ways that they could very easily get killed. Um, you know, you have the final scene um, with his confrontation with Max Capricorn, and he's not actually the one that does anything important in that scene. That's Kylie Minogue's character, Astrid Perth, and she is the one that, you know, flings Max off of a cliff, off a balcony, uh, with, you know, the forklift, um, and also simultaneously She tried to, to kill Max with a forklift. Oh, Lord. Sorry. MST3K deep cut there. Sorry. Um, <laughs> that being said, that was the least dramatically uh, staged. That, that that was a really damn slow forklift for uh, such a uh, dramatic finishing move there. Well, it's kind of a problem that I found with the entire episode. I think it's like the third longest running time uh, episode that has gone out, um, something like that. It has a pretty long running time. And there's so many moments like that where I was like, I, I just want to edit this down. Like, I just want to cut out five seconds here, 10 seconds here, 30 seconds here. I would like to use the falling backwards, arms outstretched, mouth wide open in shock shot less than it's used uh, in this episode. I'd like to cut down some of the conversations at the end. Um, it's just, it's a very long episode, and there's a lot of things that I felt like, oh, this is dragging on and on forever. Yeah, and it's sort of, and that's sort of part of the disaster movie trope, you know, the moments mm-hmm. that you have to take to get to know the people before they die, because otherwise you don't feel it, and they're just cannon fodder. Yeah. It's also, I think, there are some scenes that I kind of raised an eyebrow at, um, particularly the doctor being lifted up through the ship by the golden angels. Uh, You know, it was one of the things that sort of got a raised eyebrow from me at the end of series three, where you have the doctor becoming almost a godlike figure for a moment to defeat Mm -hmm. the master. And here's another, you know, 
kind of doctor is a godlike figure. The lonely moment. god thing. Yeah. 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 And it it's one of those things that like I sort of I understand thematically what's going on here. And, and maybe it's just a reaction to the effects themselves that I, you know, kind of they, they feel overdone to me to a point. Um, but it's I, you know, they're they're really leaning hard into that theme here uh, with it. Um, and it's it's hard to say exactly what it is about me that feels a little internally about it uh, when I see them come up. Um, I think the overlapping of religious imagery on the doctor, who is one of our great secular characters, I think that may be part of it. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, and then there's also the fact that there's an uncomfortable fit between all of this mythologizing of the Doctor and the fact that the Tenth Doctor in particular is so conflicted and so, you know, ha- has such attachment issues and all these other things that, you know, he's not a very good candidate for godhood. No, he's very much not. And they do address that later on, you know, and it's it's starting to build towards that Waters of Mars moment of, you know, he is definitely not the person that you want to be omnipotent in the universe. He needs boundaries. He needs people to hold him back. Um, and it's it's interesting that this is an episode where for a while he does have somebody who's, you know, trying to keep him on track. Um but this is the point where he's starting to lose those people and become a little bit too inward looking on his own pain and not really care about how he's taking it out on people. Yeah. And this is stuff that I really, really actually like about the RTD mm-hmm. era. Um, you know, I think that I think that Davis is ultimately very clear that the Tenth Doctor is a flawed individual. And I am okay with seeing a flawed doctor in action. I mean, God knows. Look at Series 8 uh, and, and Peter Capaldi's rough edges. You know, it's it's not pleasant, and I'm glad that the doctor moves on, but it does feel real-ish. Um, but, you know, Voyage of the Damned works for me, but it's not feel-good television for me. It's not entertaining for me in the way that disaster movies are for a lot of folks. Yeah. And, you know, I certainly, you know, the the episode is fine enough to watch, but this is not one of the episodes that I go back to repeatedly around Christmas time. It doesn't bring that Christmas feeling out in me particularly. No. One last thing, though, the supporting cast, by and large, is magnificent. Uh, Kylie, of course, is delightful as Astrid Peth, but Russell Tovey as Midshipman Frame, this is one of his breakout roles before he went into being human. Uh, The actors whose names I forget who play Marvin and Foon, they Mm -hmm. are the butts of too many jokes in this episode, and yet the actors portray the characters with a great deal of warmth and intelligence and humanity, and I really do like them. Yeah, they saved those characters from being too buffoonish uh, and just, you know, nauseatingly cartoonish. Mm-hmm. I And I really appreciated that about the way that they uh, brought those roles to life. And Jimmy V as Banna Cafalata. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which was an interesting and odd deviation into the humanity of cyborgs. And not entirely sure they landed it, but I'm sure... It, produces a lot of wonderful essays. Yeah. It is kind of weird, though, that he was the only obvious 
alien in the entire ship's uh, complement, though. Uh, uh, an expensive-looking episode, an expansive-looking episode, and, uh, you know, it's and one of the highest-rated and high, highest-appreciated uh, Christmas specials of them all. It was just so darn big, it caught a lot of attention during a crowded Christmas season. Uh, something that I think caught a little bit less attention would be The Next Doctor, the following year's follow-up in 2008. Which is very surprising because it is the most trollish of trollish episodes <laughs> that you could potentially find. You're coming off of Series 4. You're coming up to the Tenth Doctor's regeneration. Like These are the specials that are uh, interspersing that time period. And here they go, naming the episode The Next Doctor featuring a character who believes he is the next doctor and not really addressing that mystery until halfway through the episode. Uh, and I, it, I think, you know, it, it's a interesting concept and idea. Um, and it's, I think a remarkably light episode for what it is that they are uh, sort of eventually going to be dealing with that. It's really a parody of some sorts of the doctor and particularly David Tennant's doctor. You know, it's taking everything about him and just making it a tad bit more absurd, a tad bit more played for laughs. Yeah. And then you layer on top of that David Morrissey's costume. And I think there were conversations about that on uh, Doctor Who Confidential or in other places about how this supposed next doctor is designed to look like Basically, a classic fanboy's impression of what a real, of what their doctor would look like, because of course their doctor would dress in period attire, and of course, you know, and uh, possibly have a little bit of Colin Baker bombasticness to him. You know, none of this, none of this uh, sand shoes and uh, and overcoats and students. Yuppie hair. Yeah, none of this stuff. You know, he's. He is coming out of the Paul McGann costume playbook here. And that is, I think, really trollish because he he is, of course, not a doctor. No, he's very much not. Um, but it is very interesting to sort of play with that idea of what makes the doctor because he only gets the information about the doctor. And it's the combination of his sort of own innate desire to do good and the fugue state that's brought on by his loss that he really takes this to the nth degree and really tries to be the doctor you know tries to hunt down this mystery try to figures out what happened to him and what happened to this person that he thinks he doesn't know jackson lake uh and goes the extra mile builds a tardis gets his own quote-unquote sonic screwdriver and uh it's it's a fun way of looking at, you know, what really makes the doctor. Is it, you know, all of the accessories that we associate with him, a companion, a ridiculous craft, a magic screwdriver that does anything that he needs it to, or is it what it is that the doctor does on a regular basis? Yeah. After his memory is restored, he's still a big damn hero walk, walking around with a bandolier full of uh, memory component things that can helpfully blow up Cybermen. 
mm-hmm. and and things like that. And it's a great pairing. I have always actually wanted this sort of story to happen in in so-called real Doctor Who. I mean, the wouldn't it be great to have had an episode this season, sort of midway through or something like that, where Jodie Whittaker shows up as the 13th Doctor? There are millions of reasons why that that is actually a bad idea. None the least of which being that if you introduce a next doctor and the contract negotiations fall apart or something like that, you know, the next the next showrunner is left holding the proverbial bag. But Oh, forget the contract negotiations. Think about how you'd try to like actually play that and keep that secret from everyone else. You know, the episode where they brought Jenna Coleman in early was, I think, only able to be managed because she literally had no like on location shoots for that. They could basically stick her in a dark room for that entire shooting and just go, all right, you're hidden here and nobody knows that you're coming in early for this episode. Yeah, but if you literally bring in the next doctor early, even though it even though fanboy logic, there is no sensible reason why you only have multi-doctor episodes when you're looking backward instead of forward. Um, You know, you d- you don't want to bring in the next doctor and then have your current doctor just sort of appearing to be a lame duck in the popular culture. Yeah, but gosh, it would be a fun thing to do, and it's kind of fun to see them play with that idea. So when we uh, were getting ready to record, I got a text from you. And it said, oh, my God, I think I have I actually watched all of the next doctor. Um, There are some things about this episode that rub you the wrong way. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I basically can only watch the first part of this story at any given point. Like I I sat through it because we were gonna want gonna record this and I just felt the need to, okay, I'm gonna watch this all the way through. I'm going to remind myself about everything that happened. And this episode really, really rubs me the wrong way for basically everything else that exists in it. Um I really dislike the villain of this episode, Mercy Hardigan, um, and not of, you know, I just find her annoying. I think she's actually a really poorly written villain. Um, what Mercy Hardigan basically is, is a straw feminist trope. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with this, this is the trope that exists in television in which a straw feminist character is created. She seems to parody Uh, the ideas of feminism and exists in the episode to sort of be brought down and brought low. Um, And this was um, a phenomenon that people started seeing in sort of the post-feminist backlash. And yeah, I'm I'm going into really academic terms, but I'm trying to place this in context here, um, that Once a lot of major rights started to be won for women, particularly in the UK and the US, in pop culture, you started to see a lot of, why do we really need feminism anymore? And so you had these characters that were created um, that were basically someone's straw ideal of, you know, this is this is what everything we hate about feminism. And we're just going to we're going to tear it down and we're going to uplift these other people as, you know, what really what feminists do. They they don't critique. They just, you know do their own thing and they're perfect for it anyways. And 
Mercy Hartigan is kind of awful with this. You know, she has a lot of those terrible lines that someone who's just seen their first feminist comic for the first time thinks is the absolute funniest pinnacle height of comedy of the cyber king will rise. Well, how just like a man, like really, this is middle school level humor for this. She is constantly talking about how overlooked she is, but how she's really the most brilliant person in the world. She's seeming to criticize the patriarchy, and yet she only exists in this story to exploit other people. Um, and it's just kind of gross. Like, it it just really is. This isn't what feminism is. She's sort of presented as being, you know, a, a strong woman feminist character too early before feminism. And, you know, it destroys her and makes her into a bad person. And this is what happens when you're eaten up inside by those awful thoughts of how exploited and victimized you are. And that's another thing that happens in the episode. It's very strongly implied that she's a victim of rape. And this has uh, just destroyed her so utterly that she has become this evil villain uh, who wants to destroy the planet. Like that's that's a really kind of terrible message to send. Um, and so I, I really find Mercy Hartigan just unbearably just... Ugh. Well performed, I thought. I thought Devla Kerwin did, you know, did pretty well with the script that she had, but that's, I thought... That's about all I can say. <laughs> I've been credit for it. Yeah, it is. As, as, as written, you know, she is a damaged person who is taking her damage out on other people. She's an evil workhouse operator. She is vile to Rosita, mm-hmm. who I enjoy quite a bit as a character, by the way. There's also, you know, the question of how Christmassy a steampunk Gundam is stomping around through uh, London. A giant robot has been done before on Doctor Who. Iconically mm-hmm. so. Um, mm-hmm. But does it make sense for the Cybermen? You know, I... I, That's not really so much the part that bothers me. I think it could have been done um, in a different episode and it could have landed of, you know, Cybermen at Christmas and building a giant Cyberman and stomping through Victorian London. Like, it's kind of fun. It's kind of ridiculous. But, you know, there's plenty of ridiculous episodes in which we just sort of ignore the fact that, you know, uh, the Loch Ness Monster showed up in the Thames and and everybody's totally okay with it. I think that's not its particular flaw or failing here. I think where it sticks the landing is at the end where Jackson Lake sort of convinces the doctor to come and join them for Christmas dinner because the doctor is, you know, pretty dark in this episode as well. You know, coming off of series four, he's just lost about everybody. Um, He is floating aimlessly on his own. He tells Jackson Lake to get out of harm's way with his son because he has something to live for, with the implication being the doctor doesn't have anything to live for at the moment, that he's willing to sort of put himself in life-threatening danger because he doesn't have anything holding him uh, to earth anymore. And Jackson Lake sort of revives the sense of you do have a community if you want to be a part of one, that you can come join people for things like Christmas dinner, that he can find a place. And that to me is where the Christmassy spirit sort of really lands with this episode. Um, And I think that the rest of it 
could have been saved, but I think that uh, Mercy Hardigan's just sort of brings a lot of that down for me. What could they have done to Mercy Hardigan to fix it? Well, I think it would have been more interesting instead of creating a straw feminist character to really lean further in onto those men of industry and charity that were brought up earlier. You know, I think that uh, Thin Ice uh, from Series 10 did a really interesting job of examining that early capitalist mentality and the exploitation of marginalized people. You know, I think the exploitation of the children is kind of silly, but also kind of interesting in that it's mostly going to be watched by children who will probably have known about Victorian workhouses and things like that. But this brings sort of the threat of it um, and the exploitation and the horror of it to very vivid life. And if those men were sort of willing participants with the Cybermen and saying, you know, oh, yeah, a cyber worker is not any different from these lowly children with no families. They're all just interchangeable cogs in a machine and we're keeping the machinery of capitalism going, that would have been a really interesting episode to examine. Um, and I think that could have saved the whole concept of Cybermen pushed back to Victorian times and creating a cyberpunk version of themselves to try to still take over the earth. And and that could have that could have landed. Um, but that's not the episode that we get. And that's no, just me spitballing. Yeah. And you're right. I think that uh, this episode acknowledges but doesn't adequately engage with the class issues uh, that, you know, they're there uh, Mm -hmm. with Rosita, with Mercy, with the kids in the workhouse. Um, But in in just the same way as the Shakespeare Code with uh, Martha, you know, just sort of acknowledging it really isn't enough. One one parting shot. It also doesn't make sense to me that these really shouldn't be the Cybus Cybermen. These really shouldn't be the Pete's World Parallel World Cybermen. These should be Cybermen from here, from from this universe, so we don't have to deal with any of the hand-waving about what happened in the void and how they got their information about the Doctor and all this stuff from the Daleks. These should have been native Cybermen to this universe, descended from the Mondasians, all along it would have been a much cleaner story. Uh, Alas, we did not have someone like Peter Capaldi coming in and going, no, really, you can bring back the Mondasians now. It's okay. They're going to be tolerable again. (laughs) Yeah, the costumes that that were available still had the big C on them, and there we go. It all Um, comes down to plot and production and money. Yeah. I don't hate the next Doctor, but I think that it is the least meaningful and thoughtful of the Christmas specials to date. Christmas cheer is in a little short supply. Mm-hmm. Well, when we get together next week on This Week in Time Travel, we will be joined by a friend of the show, Graham Burke, who is going to be sharing with us his thoughts about something that I talked with him about way back on Reality Bomb in the Gallery of the Underrated, back when I didn't have a podcast, so I was Mm -hmm. able to get in on the rules there. Uh, We're going to revisit the end of time, and we're going to talk about The Christmas Carol, the first Stephen Moffat and Matt Smith Christmas special. 
Thank you for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're on Twitter at DRWho This Week. Chip is on Twitter at numeral two minute time lord, and I'm on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. You can find us on Facebook too. Thanks to Jason Snell for hosting us on the Incomparable Network. You can support all of us, especially this week in time travel. Check the box, people. By becoming a member at theincomparable.com slash members. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our theme music and to David J. Lore for our podcast logo. Next week, Christmas again. It's Christmas is all the way down on This Week in Time Travel. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Hi, uh, it's I'm Graham Burke, and uh, I'm here to give you the um, uh, the Doctor Who news on tape. It's uh, January 11th, 1992, and the big news is Shada is finally being released. Yeah, oh my God, uh, it's the legendary unfinished fourth Doctor story. is It's finally being completed with a VHS release, and it's going to have linked material by Tom Baker himself, and, and John Nathan Turner is producing it, so you know it's got to be good. Uh, anyway, um, in other news, uh, Virgin Publishing has announced that its um, uh, latest new adventure novels includes one called Nightshade by Mark... Um, is that Gattis? Uh, anyway, it's... Anyways, there's also one by a guy named Paul Cornell called Love and War. Well, here's the news in the world of Doctor Who for September 13th, 2002. I'm Graham Burke. Shada, the legendary un- 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 unfinished Tom Baker story written by Douglas Adams, is going to be finally completed. Uh, Big Finish is going to be doing a partially animated webcast with Paul McGann playing the Doctor with Lala Ward as Romana. And I'm not quite sure how they're going to do-, do-, do that since the Five Doctors already has footage from it, but... It'll be fun, and, oh, look, they have Manuel from Faulty Towers as Professor Cronotus, and Susanna Harker as Claire. Well, you know, short of Russell T. Davies suddenly making Doctor Who, like, that's going to happen. <laughs> this, this, this webcast is probably going to be the next big thing. <laughs> Looks like we might have a fully animated version made by Ian Levine with the entire original cast. It, except someone will be doing Tom Baker's voice. The writer of The Lodger, Gareth Roberts' new adaptation of Shadow will be out in bookstores next September. I'm Graham Burke, and here's the Doctor Who News Podcast for October 10, 2017. Shada, the legendary unfinished Tom Baker story written by Douglas Adams, is being finished in an animated production that brings back Tom Baker... You're f***ing kidding me. We're doing Shada again? Good grief! Lala Ward will have done this, what, five times? It's like some f***ing demented version of Groundhog Day or Megloss. What are you gonna do, waggle its tail? Dear God, what are we... Hello, this is a holographic simulacrum of Graham Burke's radio voice.
This is the Doctor Who News Thoughtcast for April 17, 2059. Genetic duplicates of Tom Baker, Lalo Ward, Victoria Burgoyne, and Christopher Neem have finished their final scenes in the new version of Shada that will complete the legendary story by Douglas Adams. In other news, Jodie Whittaker will be returning to the role of the 13th Doctor for Big Finish alongside 14th Doctor Rocky Thakur and 15th Doctor Georgia Tennant in the Retro Media.